0: Evening. I'm Chris Wickham. I'm the chair of the history faculty and and I'm here to do the introduction to Hayden White, who who is sitting here and whom you will hear of rather more than me and whom you have come to hear and you haven't come to hear me. But I do want to say a few words about this occasion. Uh, This is the first Cantamere lecture and this is the first... That this is, this is uh, by way of being, the formal opening of the Faculty of History's Cantemir Institute, which is focused on the history of East and Central Europe, but is actually focused on the history of a quite large number of other things. Um, Hayden White is not going to talk about the history of East and Central Europe, except, except by geographical location. Um, and... It's, it's an honour for us to be able to, to, to open the Institute in this way, and it's certainly an honour uh, for us to be able to open it with Hayden White, with, with a figure like Hayden White. It's fair to say that the Institute is, is it's privately funded by the, the, the Barendel Foundation. Uh, it's going to have a number of postgraduate studentships. We hope it's going to be the focus of a considerable amount of postdoctoral and research activity, buzz but I can already see in the room that that you're prepared for buzz, and that's good already. Hayden White, he's been working in this field for 50 years. Um, He's been been writing history almost as long as I have been alive. And I can say, speaking as a medievalist, uh, it is nice to know that he started as a medievalist, uh, working on the papal schism of the level But it's fair to say that he took a Weberian position to that schism, which most people writing on the Schism of 1130 did not do in 1955. And he was already interested in historical philosophy. Crochet, Toynbee, Collingwood are all all figures from his pen already in in the 1950s. But it's in the 60s, as far as I can tell, that he becomes explicitly publicly concerned with locating history as an intellectual discipline in a humanist, a, a theoretical humanist framework. And he's still concerned with this. Uh, his huge volume, Meta History, dates from 1973. And I can still remember the excitement that, that I had reading it. I, I mean, I have to say, 10 years later, I, I wasn't exactly an early adopter. You uh, but... probably 13. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I was already in an academic post. <laughs> um, but, but, but anyway, the excitement of it. Was, was, was extraordinary and I w- would go around saying that this is the answer and people would say no it's not and then, then we would argue but works of history are not just based on argument they are imaginative reconstructions they are implotted as much as argued. it's something, it's a realisation that has got into the profession as an immense influence I mean even if you don't know it you've been influenced by Hayden White He's one of those figures like, just take contemporaries, one of those figures like Thomas Kuhn, like Michel Foucault, whose insights pervade historical culture, whether you've read them or not. And so it's worth reading them, of course, but you have read him, even if you don't know you've read them. Um, it's better to read it because then you can actually do it critically rather than just absorb it through osmosis, through the skin. Critical is always better, but you have read it without knowing it. Anyway, he's written articles all his life, he's got three major article collections that drive that on. The most recent is from 2010. And as far as this lecture is concerned, he has also, right from the start, been interested in how to construct the narrative of the the Holocaust. So his most recent working out is exactly the topic of the paper today.
1: Chris, Uh, this is not a hall that uh, lends itself to intimate uh, communication, uh, but I'll do my best to uh, engage you in some way that might make it worth your while to spend an hour, less than an hour, uh, (laughs) talking about things that interest me but may not interest you. Uh, On Monday, I gave a lecture called uh, The Practical Past which is a a term borrowed from uh, the philosopher Michael Oakeshott, uh, who wants to make a distinction between the generic past and that part of it that is open to study by historical methods. That is to say, not all of the past is open to study by historical methods. And one of the meta-historical problems is how you distinguish between the historical past and the rest of it. the historical past, that part which is accessible by way of documents, monuments, and so forth, uh, and uh, which uh, lends itself to representation and reconstruction, reconstitution, uh, by the methods that have been refined over some 2,000 years uh, by the people who call themselves historians. Now, these people who call themselves historians approach this historical past differently. They don't always agree on the way in which, the proper way of confronting the historical past. But they are certain that there is, well, for example, the term prehistory indicates a part of the past that doesn't yet belong to history uh, and therefore uh, has to be studied by other non-historical methods, ethnographic, archaeological and so forth. Modern Western culture is committed to the idea that the past of a civilization, or of a people, of a nation, that the past of a nation uh, holds the key to the understanding of the group identity, that uh, this past, approached historically, can provide something like a genealogy of the nation and can contribute to a fleshing out of the details of group identity. Uh, This is what, this is the principal social function of history. Historical inquiry can be undertaken just for itself alone, as they say, out of antiquarian interests, people who like old things, you know, can study old things uh, without any ulterior uh, motive and uh, contribute to what we can call the database uh, of uh, historiography that later scholars can go to and study uh, for other motivations, ideological, political, or or what have you. Now, uh, what about, though, the rest of this past? Because the other past, the non-historical past, uh, continues even after what we call history begins. It it continues as that part of the past that is not documented, uh, that cannot be approached by the the methods we use for studying uh, the rise and fall of nations, uh, civilizations, and so forth. It is made up of, uh, perhaps, living memory, for example. This audience carries around with it uh, knowledge or experience of a past that will never get into the historical record. Uh, This past is made up in part of your knowledge of history, the history books, that history past, historical past that is distilled into of the books and articles of professional historians. But uh, it's not as useful, it's not as useful to you either as individual or as groups as this other past, which is made up of memory of uh, what might be called collective imaginative relationships to the collective past or uh, the experiences of the group that had been passed on by oral tradition, by institutional uh, uh, forms and uh, processes, uh, and which uh, certain groups may have, be <laughs> custodians of, but other, and other groups excluded from any, from any knowledge of. For example, uh, increasingly the modern state, Uh, keep secrets from its its citizens. Uh, And in fact, contemporary archives, uh, most of the archives now are controlled by private corporations. And most of the data that we would want to use to study, say the last century or so, uh, is in the hands of uh, private corporations uh, that put very severe restrictions on who can get to this material. So the corporations themselves Uh, in the West uh, have uh, materials that bear upon the past that will not be available to public scholarship. An example was a few years back when the Deutsche Bank and Volkswagen wanted to have the the history of their company uh, written. Uh, So they contracted with a a couple of legitimate professional historians, and gave them unique access to their archives. Other historians were not allowed access to those archives to check on the work that had been done in the histories that were subsequently published of Deutsche Bank and Volkswagen. Well, uh, what does this say about uh, the openness of access to either the historical past or the practical past. Now why, do, why does Oak Shop speak about the alternative to the historical past as the practical past? It's because he wants to uh, suggest that we may go to the past, we may study the past, out of reasons other than scientific curiosity, out of reasons that may have to do with utilitarian concerns, Is there some technique, is there some science, is there some occult lore that might help us, the group or the individual, to deal with some practical problem in the present? But Oakeshott was interested in the practical past in the sense that Kant was interested in practical reason. By the practical reason, of course, Kant meant the reason of the will and and of ethics, uh, the ethical, ethical reasoning, which was concerned, as he put it himself, with only one question, what should I, what should we do? What should we do? Not what can we do? In a sense, that's what the question that he put in the first critique, the critique of pure reason, which was asked the question, what are the limits of scientific knowledge? What can we possibly know? The second critique what should we do with what we know? What should we do with the, with the knowledge that's given to us by science, by a whole host of antiquarians, by, by uh, many people who are interested in the past uh, because they their, ans- their interested in their ancestry, or many people who are concerned about the past because it holds some secret to some problem that can't be gotten over by subsequent generations, a traumatic past. And this is what brings one to the study of the Holocaust, which is certainly a traumatic moment in the history of Germany, if not all of Europe, if not the whole of Western uh, society. Uh, The Holocaust as a traumatic event an event that can't be assimilated to the normative narrative account of Germany or of Europe, can't easily be assimilated. It seems inconsistent with the, the, with the, the commitments and the moral basis of this uh, society. You know, how could it have happened in, the most, in one of the most advanced uh, uh, nations uh, of, of the world? The nation that gave us Beethoven and Schubert, and uh, not to mention Goethe, Schiller, uh, Heine, and so forth. How could it have happened there? Is it an aberration? Is it an anomaly? Is it an atavism? Is it a throwback to some earlier uh, time? How could it have happened? It can't be assimilated to the normative narrative account of our culture and yet it can't be gotten rid of. It's the past that won't go away, that each new generation of Germans, certainly, and most of us in the West should uh, be included in that group, those of us who are interested in, not only what 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 is the history of Western culture and Western civilization, but what does that history mean for the world that is to say, the fact that it was Western Europe that expanded over the world, not, not uh, Asian uh, civilizations that expanded. It, it was the West that sent not only missionaries out and explorers out and commercial adventurers out, uh, but also ethnographers to study the rest of the world as if it were some exotic thing that had to be uh, scientifically analyzed. While, as far as I know, uh, the Bushman, Hottentot was not sending ethnographers to study uh, Europe or the West. What? What is this drive? What is the nature of this drive uh, for imperial control of the total of the world of the world? What does this mean for the rest of the world, uh, if not for uh, us ourselves? Uh, the United I, an American, I uh, am embarrassed uh, at. The activity of the American empire, which threatens not only the destruction of uh, many local cultures, but 720 military bases strewn around the globe, uh, with a, a culture that has 7 million people either in prison or on parole or under some kind of uh, social workers' uh, control. 7 million. Uh, A culture that uh, uh, condemns one in ten black males to prison, that has privatized police and prison uh, institutions, has contracted them out, has contracted prisons in Mexico, the state of California, to send American citizens who are accused of crimes that have been convicted of for care by a private corporation uh, that has recently, through the passage of what is called the Patriot Act, uh, deprived its own citizens, its response to terrorism, uh, has let it, like, like all countries do, they turn upon their own citizens, start putting, taking away civil rights of their own citizens on the presumption that the enemy is already within the gates, within the walls. Uh, This is the kind of hysterical response uh, that uh, comes from uh, a culture of which we are a product, being formerly a colony, uh, a culture that uh, has uh, expanded primarily through violence, primarily through violence, the genocide of indigenous peoples, uh, in uh, the North American continent uh, and the uh, uh, the uh, tot- totalitarian military uh, activities that led to the Civil War, our Civil War, and now for the last 60 years we've been in uh, constant warfare. We're, as you know, uh, in two major wars right now and many, many other small ones uh, carried out by clandestine operations or privately contracted uh, paramilitary uh, groups. Now, these are sinister developments. How did it happen, you see? This is the sort of thing that. That's, that's what interests me is in this story. I, I, I want to say, therefore, that anyone who is professionally interested in the study of the past will be looking for means and methodologies. For dealing not only with uh, scientific uh, questions like what happened, but also with ethical questions, questions of genuinely moral concern uh, that lead you back to uh, on a kind of detective's quest uh, to find out who's responsible, who's responsible for the plague, the uh, the ethical question, what's wrong with Thebes? Okay, so. this is why, I, this is why I turned to the study of uh, of the Holocaust and the historiography on it, uh, because uh, I want to suggest that those of us who are in this business uh, have to confront two kinds of events, uh, what I call ordinary everyday events, for which uh, like a fire, a fire alarm goes off. We, we anticipate that. We have institutions for dealing with But something like uh, 9-11, uh, two jet aircraft uh, going into huge uh, skyscrapers, uh, we were not prepared for that. We, we thought this is, well, we had all sorts of silly things being said at the time, but among them was the idea that the world has changed forever. Or when uh, American innocence is lost or uh, this is a new, a new era that has begun, or uh, things of that sort. Now, uh, events like that and their study, I call modernist events. These are events that are not, couldn't even be imagined prior to the development of advanced capitalism and the technologies that make that possible. These are events that cannot be imagined in the details. To jet. Who could imagine a jet aircraft to begin with in the 19th century? Uh, not to speak of these uh, large skyscrapers and the, uh, the uh, use of uh, jet aircraft by terrorist group to uh, destroy uh, the symbolic center of world capitalism, uh, the World Trade Center. Uh, these are cons- uh, events of concern rather than of mere of mere curiosity and the question arises as to whether one needs to think about new technologies of both inquiry and representation to deal with them adequately. What I I want to do here is raise the question uh, once more, we've been debating it for many years without final issue, uh, uh, what is an appropriate representation for events that are of ethical concern to the community? What are the appropriate modes of representation? That is to say, is there an improper way of representing an event like the Holocaust? The issue was raised when Art Spiegelman's uh, "Mouse" uh, was published, the idea being that you couldn't use a low genre, uh, such as comic book, graphic novel techniques, for the representation of an event so, so horrifying uh, in its implications about the possibilities of evil of the human race. Someone raised the question <clears throat> the other evening about uh, Benigni's uh, uh, La Vita e Bella, uh, the idea that you would have it would make a comedy a out comedy of the life uh, of the uh, concentration camps. There was this tasteless, uh, was an example of uh, Italian superficiality uh, and uh, insouciance before uh, evil. And uh, in uh, Holocaust studies uh, these questions have centered upon a mode and a genre of historical representation uh, namely narrative which uh, most scientific historians regard as no longer useful for uh, representation of historical reality. Narrative. And by narrative, I mean story and storytelling. Can it really be thought that life resembles, has the form, has the kind of dialectic, the kind of uh, uh, developmental processes and patterns that we met with in traditional story forms, fables, legends, myths, uh, novels? And if so... uh, if this is the case, as Brodell, Fernand Brodell wrote in 1956, maybe maybe narrative representation, the representation of history as a set of stories, maybe this is the real ideology rather than any content that you might put into the narrative form. It was uh, used to be thought that na- narrative is a form like a bottle into which you could distill various contents, and that uh, the contents alone uh, were what was important. The narrative form was there merely to make palatable uh, the uh, ingestion uh, of the the hard facts that had been arrived at by scientific means. Uh, Modernist writing, I'm thinking of people like Brecht, uh, the dramatist, Uh, And uh, most modernist novelists, and I'm thinking of Virginia Woolf and Proust and uh, a host of others, hold that to describe the real world as if it had the form and contours and meaning of a well-made story with a plot that connects up beginning, middle, and end, and results in some kind of illumination at the end that casts a shadow. Cast a light back over what had happened earlier to explain how my, in my beginning was my end, as Coleridge put it. Uh, uh, that this that, that this itself is delusory is delusory. That this is an ideological. This is the work of ideology to to uh, uh, convince or persuade people that they're, they're, it's cap- they're capable of living their life as if it were a novel, as if it were a romance, as if it were a tragedy even. So um, Brodell said, if we're going to have a scientific historiography, we must get rid of narrative. So henceforth, all of the, the genres of historical writing will be various kinds of scientific reports. Uh, no more narration, no more narrativity, now, uh, Saul Friedlander, uh, my colleague at the University of California, at Los Angeles, uh, has for more than 25 years argued that we need a, an integrated narrative account of the Holocaust in order to lay down a kind of degree zero of uh, effectivity, of factuality, against which we can measure various deviations including those of the revisionists or the deniers of history. And so uh, Friedlander has been working for 20 years, and finally in 2008, published his great work, which is called Nazi Germany and the Jews, and it's in two volumes. Volume one, uh, The Years of Persecution. Volume two, uh, The Years of Extermination. Uh, The Years of Extermination is the tour de force, because here, I believe believe that Friedlander succeeds in giving us a modernist version of historiography based upon the model of the novel, but of the modernist novel, not of the pre-modernist realist novel. Uh, And I wanted to suggest that one of the problems that we historians who are working on modernist cultures and events, one of the problems that we have is finding the means to uh, give a convincing account of of, of the monstrous events of the kind that the Holocaust represents or indeed any act of genocide. How to represent monstrosity is the problem. Now, the reason I had that uh, uh, thing that you couldn't read uh, up there before, uh, this this is the way historians work. I mean, we tell you of the evidence we have Sometimes we show it. Sometimes we don't. This, uh, well, I'm going to tell you what it says. This is, what, this is what, how you teach history. You, you put something on the, on the screen or you put a document in someone's hand in a language that the student does not know. So you tell them it, what's in the document and then you use the document for your own purposes. Uh, it turned out, I tried to download this, these pages uh, this morning, and uh, I couldn't get them in, in the focus. But I will tell you, this is a page, or two pages, from uh, W.G. Zebal's uh, uh, novel, Austerlitz. And uh, Austerlitz is a uh, quintessentially post postmodernist novel. Uh, it has no plot, it really has no character, there is no event. Nothing happens. Uh, and uh, uh, there is no uh, illumination uh, at It's the story of Jacques Austerlitz, a historian of architecture, who discovers at the age of 16 that he is a Jewish boy. And as a 4 uh, year old he was put on the kinder transport and uh, sent to... Uh, British Isles, where he ended up in Wales being raised by a Protestant minister and his wife. And uh, they uh, conditioned him to believe that he was Welsh. So he grew up thinking he was Welsh until the age of 16. He was told that you no, know, you were children sort of Czech Jewish parents who, who disappeared in the Holocaust. And uh, you are uh, in reality a Jew, although he was a and so forth. Uh, and uh, This led him uh, to point his education towards uh, the attainment of the kinds of skills that would allow him to find out what happened to his parents. And uh, the the narrator, who is not the same as the author, not identifiable with the author, uh, meets Austerlitz from time to time uh, in various places in Europe uh, where uh, where, uh, when Austerlitz says, Gone to this place or that place to try to uh, get some information about what happened to his parents. Presumably, he, tra- he tracks them to Theresienstadt, the Potemkin uh, village kind of uh, concentration camp, as you recall, that was built to make concentration camps attractive to groups like the Red Cross and so forth. <coughs> he traces his mother there, his father, he's not sure he makes it to Paris. Now, uh, Ausplitz is a a historian of European architecture, is well-versed in the instruments of inquiry into the uh, cultural past of Europe, but he finds that none of these instruments uh, helps him, that none of his professional skills as a scholar can help him in this personal uh, inquiry uh, that has something to do with not only the discovery of whether his parents are dead or alive, whether they escaped the Holocaust, but who he was when he uh, as, a, as a child. Uh, the best he could do is find a woman who worked as a maid. Well, in any event, we have these encounters between Austerlitz and the narrator, uh, and uh, they look, they're, they're nothing but. Uh, uh, reports of failures on the part of the failure of, the, of all of the instruments for inquiry into the past for solving this personal problem that Auschwitz has, namely who am I and what happened to my, uh, my parents. Now this these pages here are in the voice of the narrator and they are uh, they are uh, very interesting pages because they tell of the narrator's visit to Antwerp uh, and uh, his uh, visit to Fort Braindonk, which was a defensive fort that built uh, for defense against the uh, Wehrmacht, as the Germans obviously had completely ineffective, And uh, what ultimately ended up being a Gestapo torture uh, facility. Uh, now, so he goes out to, he gets a map of the, uh, of the Fortress, which is down here, from right, Tom, and he, he and so he studies that the day before, and he decides to go out and look. At, he has a fear; he has a map of the territory, right? But he, when he goes out to look at it, the thing itself looks like something from out some some monstrosity. Some he, he, he likens it to some beast from the depths that had been tossed up the shore. And he, there's, he can't orient himself at all. So that it, what, what he sees is that the map gave him a false sense of what he would find if he went and actually experienced a low the locale. cap It's the difference between the map and the territory, right? And what he finds out is that he can't make any sense of where he or orient himself at all. And the, the, this becomes a kind of, this is serves as a kind of emblem of uh, Austerlitz's uh, journey. So no matter where he goes, he finds monstrosity. The historian of architecture, who is also a historian of industrial architecture, is uh, a historian of uh, not the great classical monuments, but all of those ugly buildings that we find ourselves inhabiting uh, in our daily lives as, as public persons. Uh, you know, or in our personal lives as we go home in the evening. My argument is going to be that Friedlander's years of extermination, second volume of his his masterpiece, which has been praised for its literary qualities, also praised for its impeccable scholarship, its impeccable following of the rules of historical uh, inquiry. Uh, for his coverage he's read everything uh, on the Holocaust apparently in at least three languages. Not Italian. I mean we reviewers you know, uh, what about the Italian source about, uh, you? Yeah, He's right here in the examination room. Think about exam It's always meant to show you don't know quite everything. <laughs> <laughs> How is your brief? You know? <laughs> Uh, so, what I'm going to do is give you a kind of rundown now, very quickly. Okay, I put this up here because this is my presentation. I mean, I want you to be aware that I've arranged these materials, these quotations and so forth from his work, and uh, I put them under this title and this image. The image is supposed to be in the and it says Auschwitz, right? But it looks like a nice pleasant uh, woods. Uh, I would hope that that would make you wonder, you know, what's going on here? Because usually you expect bike box fry or some other horrible, you know, those railroad lines moving into uh, the entrance of Auschwitz. But I put this up. Uh, this is a photo of Auschwitz, which I took some 15 years ago on the sunny, afternoon, and uh, it's the famous cops where so much, many of the ashes of the people who have been burned were put, and put, uh, no doubt contributes to the growth of the park-like uh, atmosphere. But, so I put Auschwitz here. Now, I wanted to I, I, I didn't, didn't create any kind of sense of something being wrong here. Uh, this image with this type. There's some kind of enigma that I wanted to, uh, it, can this be Auschwitz? question? Uh, and, I won't, and what I wanted to do, of course, was to, uh, to frame or stage, uh, some confusion, in order to indicate that there's an enigma here that uh, that I'm going to, by my arrangement of the materials, have the effect, well, I will try to have the effect of clearing up. I'm want to say, well, I'm going to solve it. After all, I made the enigma. So presumably I'll be able to solve it. Uh, No, so, but I call this truth and disbelief, this topic. Truth and disbelief. What is the relationship between truth and disbelief? Why do I ask this question? It's because Friedlander himself says that he wants to produce a factually accurate account of the victims of the Holocaust, most of whom's voices are not heeded by historians because their personal statements are a kind that can be checked out. You by, uh, by, you have no way of checking out the uh, factual, uh, the truth of any given diary or letter or uh, uh, any other kind of personal document. So no, he says here, he's commenting on a photograph and to, the, to a star sewn on the coat. He says, what's this portent of the Jewish star that's on the coat? of uh, this guy here, this is David Muffy, uh, who is just getting his M.D. from his medical degree from the University of Amsterdam on a particular day. Uh, And they're dressed in formal attire. Uh, We historians uh, would look at this document, and we would be able to, uh, because we know a lot about the context, we'd be able to point out all sorts of things that a non historian would not be able to perceive there. We would be able to talk about the fact that they're in uh, formal attire. Uh, and we would also be able to contextualize what seems to be it. Uh, what Roland would call the poem, <laughs> our attention drawn to the star that's sewn onto the c- coat the formal dress of David Muffy, who is receiving his degree. Even though, we historians know, the University of Amsterdam is breaking the law uh, on this, by giving this degree to a Jew, because Jews have been already prohibited from attending medical school, much less graduating. Is this, therefore, a documentary, a documentation of an act of defiance? This is, this is a Freelander's interpretation of it. But you'll notice, and, and he goes on to give a very interesting one. Now, he says, let's return to the photograph. And he says, uh, once its portent of the star, once the portent of the star is understood, the photograph triggers disbelief. Such disbelief is a quasi-visceral reaction one that occurs before knowledge rushes in to smothering. This belief here means something that arises from the depths of one's immediate perception of the world of what is ordinary and what remains still unbelievable. What is ordinary and what remains unbelievable. Now, uh, Freeminders says, what I want to do is produce the factually accurate Account of the victims of the Holocaust. That will trigger disbelief in my reader. That is to say he wants to talk the truth and nothing but the truth in the way historians do. But he wants it to, he wants to produce an affect of a particular kind, not unbelief. The difference between the two uh, is very subtle, but uh, uh, in psychoanalysis you can call it uh, the difference between denial and disavowal. The disavowal of that which you expected to see, but did not see, or you did not expect to see, but did see and don't want to see. Something that you see that you don't want to see, or something that you don't see, That you don't want to see. I mean, uh, and the question
0: arises: What kind of techniques he wants? Why does he want to trigger disbelief? Because
1: he thinks that the lives of these victims of the Holocaust are of a kind which, just if you are just given a truthful account of how they. Live those years of, of extermination, and how they died, the conditions under which they died. You would want to say, like, you would not want to believe it. You would not want to believe it if you were morally sensitive, at least. If you were nothing but a but a sadistic Nazi, you would want to believe it and feel a job well done, right? Something
0: like that. Uh, this is.
1: Describes the work of the SS in his famous speech in Poznan in uh, 1943. So, uh, how do you write a history of the undocumented, undocumented events that would arouse your moral indignation, such that you would want to say, "I disavow," "I disavow my own perception," "I disavow." the truth of what I myself know be the truth. This would be what I would call morally engaged historiography insofar as it's committed to scientific excavation of the truth, but with a purpose that is moral or ethical or political, that is intended, therefore, to produce a certain affect that will lead to raising the ethical question, what should I do? If this is possible, what should I do? If this is not only possible, if it actually happened, this actually happened, what should I do? Now that is the, the sort of question, I believe, that's asked by the great historians of the 19th century. And of course, by all of the historians prior to the 19th century, who regarded history writing as a branch of rhetoric and as a part of moral philosophy. I think that the scientificization, the scientization of historical research has resulted in the suppression of the ethical, the moral, and the political engagement of the researcher, and and also the fear that if if you try to produce a particular emotional response uh, in the reader, uh, you will be, uh, you will lead them uh, to, uh, uh, you will be, as it were, fictionalizing or aestheticizing uh, this world that you are trying to demythify in your scientific study of it. Now, uh, the structure of the book, therefore, is very interesting. It's in three parts. Three parts, and they're entitled, uh, respectively, Terror, Mass Murder, Shoah. That's the plot, such as it is. Terror, Mass Murder, Shoah. Uh, Each of the chapters, or parts, uh, is divided into three years, no, two years each. Very covered is 1939 to 1945. Six years, about the same time span as Tolstoy's War and Peace. Recall. War and Peace only covers six, eight years, I believe, uh, with a post uh, that gives us an insight into what happened. Uh, okay, now here's part one, terror. I'm, I'm, I'm only going to give you now a couple of examples of what I regard as literary writing in a scientific historiographical mode. The question is, how do you produce this response that he wants to respond? Uh, He says at the beginning, he wants to make sure he does not end up fictionalizing. He doesn't want to turn it into a romance. Here is the first thing you see when you turn the title page, turn over the title page of this text. This is the first thing you see. It's in a page by itself and uh, you can see what it says. It's an extract from a diary by one Stefan Ernest, uh, who had escaped from the Warsaw ghetto and and was in hiding on the other side of the wall in the Aryan side in a small hollow space uh, where, as he says, the struggle to save myself is hopeless. But that's not important because I am able to bring my account to its end and trust that it will see the light of day when the time is right. And people will know what happened. And they will ask, is this the truth? I reply in advance, no, this is not the truth. This is only a small part, a tiny fraction of the truth. Even the mightiest pen could not depict the whole real, essential truth. Now, then it says Stefan Ernest, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto, written in hiding in 1943 on the Aryan side of Warsaw. What's the status? What's the epistemic status of this fragment of text? Uh, Are we asked is our proper response to this? Is it true? Is that the proper? Uh, do we want to? See? Is it factually true that my situation is hopeless? Uh, is it factually true that you know? It's a, no, not at all. This is an epigraph. This is a literary device. All of you who write history, uh, put your epigraphs before you under your title. Or Maybe before your title, I don't know. Uh, and uh, my students uh, ask me, Well, what, what, what's the use of an epigraph? And I say, Well, you, because you don't realize this is a literary device, a rhetorical device, it has a specific textual function. Its function is to prepare you for the thematics of the text to follow, it's to give you the theme, the thematic enlivening. I also tell them that we post think that any epigraph will do. That, for example, maybe you want to confuse your reader. Because an epigraph, from the standpoint of a textologist, both blocks the access to the text and opens the way to it under certain conditions. Now, most of us, you know I'm talking about, I'm a professional reader, you see. When you're reading stuff like this, you just keep reading, right? And you register what you register. But we humanists, we if we can't read better than the rest of the university, we should close our shop. And I contend I've been working for
0: 50 years on
1: how to read texts. Above all, how to read non literary discourses that that purport to be scientific reports, but are cast in the form of narrative. Which is an anomaly. So uh, that's the reason I, to wonder about uh, the relationship between history and literature is that for years I was, my, my teachers confused literature with fiction. When they said literature, then it's fictional writing. Uh, of course, modern linguistics and semiotics teaches us by literature we mean discourse that uses literary devices, identifiable literary devices. So that you can have literary writing about factual materials just as well as you can have literary writing about fictional materials. This is an example. This is, once you recognize that this is a literary device, then you can study it to say what is Friedlander, who was who, who is very careful in his choice of epigraphs. Uh, what is the intent by choosing this rather than some other? I always tell my students, I say, use April as the cruelest month. <laughs> I said, no matter what your text, if you want to confuse your instructor, I say, use April as the cruelest month, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> now, I'm doing something that's very dangerous. I'm bringing rhetoric back into the discussion of discourse. And as you all know, historians hate rhetoric because they think it's either ornament or it's uh, artificial, it's artifice, and it's, it has nothing to do, it's only decoration, and uh, none of that. It's uh, falsifying and so forth as it uh, diverts us from the pursuit of the truth. What is the thematic content of this, of this text, I ask? Is it, is it to say, hey, life is hard we're all dying? Uh, and that, and that what follows is going to be a documentation of that. I don't think so. I think that what it's saying is that writing in extremis, writing in the face of death, is what this is about. And this is tr- as true of Friedlander's writing as it is of the voices that is going to, are going to be recorded uh, throughout this text. Uh, people who left written statements about what was happening to them. They weren't trying to add to the database. These are artistic statements. Stefan Ernest, as far as we know, uh, was more than just a guy who kept a diary. You can see that he's a self-conscious writer. So, that, so this epigraph is as much about writing under conditions of oppression as it is about the conditions of oppression themselves. And this gives us a clue as we thread our way, as we follow Friedlander, uh, to what is going on in his own writing. And what is going on is his refusal to turn his account into a story. It's an anti-narrativist narration of the Holocaust. He dismantles any expectation that we will have a followable story. However, he uses another literary device, uh, expertly, to do something rather like what Virginia Woolf does uh, in uh, Mrs. Dalloway or Between the Acts. He uses anecdote. Again, anecdote, as you know, for historian is nephos, no? Anecdotage is, we don't, mere anecdote, we say. He believes that the kind of information we could hope to have about the Holocaust from the standpoint of its victim comes in the form of these anecdotes. Fragments of a story, which are just gathered together in what Walter Benjamin would call a constellational relationship. Constellate. Uh, so that, for example, the first chapter of the book consists of four anecdotes. Now, I'm telling you this. I'm I'm addressing the graduate students who are working working on their dissertations, either masters or doctor or their senior theses. If you're in history and you're given a task to write, and and that's what historians do, you do your research, but but unless you write it, it doesn't count as history. So, you have to think from the moment you start the research till you come to the end of it, compositionally, you have to think about how is this stuff going to be put together in order to produce not only a contribution to the database of the field of study we're talking about, but some contribution to uh, the moral ethical or political sensibility of the culture, the society to which we belong. I am commending you uh, Friedlander's book as an example of how a modernist, and because he's a conscious modernist, he's kind of a post-modernist, you see. That is to say, to be consciously modernist is not the same thing as just being modernist. Uh, and to say, I'm going to to try to produce something that rather looks more like a novel by Virginia Woolf, than than a a novel by Sir Walter Scott, or a history by Ron or a history by Brodell, You see, is an ethical decision, and not merely a technical one. I have this other stuff that I could, could, uh, we've been here long enough, you're all professionals. You get the idea. <laughs> so I can, I can leave it to you to draw your own conclusions about it. And that would be in the spirit of a postmodernist lecture that would be open rather than closed. Thank you.